Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks for coming out and getting a little bit wet. Let's deal with this first. Congratulations to the UT fans. I accidentally like let you all in on the fact that I'm a Kentucky fan a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't thinking about the schedule or anything. Um, but just so you know, and you may not believe me, I did send a couple of texts this morning requesting an orange shirt. I was going to preach in it, and I know that would be like way out of the ordinary. Um, but everybody let me down that I texted, and I thought I really thought I had one stuck in my closet somewhere. The college I went to was the Tigers, and we were black and orange, and I thought surely there's one stuck in here somewhere, but I couldn't find one anywhere. I just, I don't like that color. Um, but Congratulations, and no, I'm not really this good of a sport about stuff like this, but I figure if I can be a good sport during football season, then if for some reason you all win during basketball season, you'll let me off the hook when I'm not a good sport about that, or if we win, then I really don't have to be a good sport then. So, but sorry I couldn't land an orange shirt for you because I was going to do that, and congratulations, you all did look good. I told somebody, I ran into Somebody that I knew, we had a piano recital yesterday, and it was another parent, and he's a UT fan. And I was like, I just hope y'all don't score 50. And so you didn't score 50. You, you got really close, but you didn't score 50. Uh, but enough of that. Congratulations. More serious stuff. Um, if, if you were here last week, just a reminder that in addition to our regular giving uh, this morning, we're asking you to consider uh, making a separate gift to what we call our Benevolence Fund, which is just... Um, kind of a designated fund set aside that we use to meet financial needs in the church as they arise and we become aware of them. And um, we've got a few families that we know of some financial needs that they've had. And so if you would like to give to that online, if you typically give online, when you go to that little drop-down menu, Benevolence Fund's available right now. Um, or if you would just like to put it in the box on your way out and just mark it so that we know it's specifically for Benevolence Fund, anything that you give in that direction, all of it will go into that fund. And so thank you um, just for your generosity in that and for loving and caring for one another the way that we're supposed to in the body. Uh, we do hope you'll come back tonight for a candy cruise in. Um, and like Keith said, we'll be here rain or shine. And then one other thing, just as church family, keeping you updated, and it does feel like every time I do these announcements, these feel like I'm really putting myself out on a limb because I'm going by information from people when the information has just tended to not turn out to be accurate. But I'm going to share with you what we know. Supposedly this week, we're going to hear back from the umpire with a final ruling in the insurance process. And so if you want to be praying this week about just that that would happen, <laughs> and then what the results of that would be. We want to let you know to keep you informed, but also just so that you can be praying about it um, and just praying that God will make it clear how we're supposed to move forward once we have this piece of information. So hopefully that happens this week, and if it does, once we've got more information, we'll let you know. Um, I think as much as anything, we'll all be really excited to have that behind us and be done with it. But that's probably happening this week. All right, enough of that kind of stuff. Ephesians, last week we took a big chunk, Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, 9, and, and I pointed out that it all goes together. It's, you know, as we walked through Ephesians, we started with this 
huge view of who God is and what he has done from all eternity past and the love that exists within him and how he has expressed that toward his people through Jesus and through his gospel. And now we've moved into this section where if that's who God is and because of who God is and he has made us his people and he's made us his family and he's made us his church, like he's done a work to make us his people and his family and his church and now he lives in us by his spirit. What does it look like if that type of God claims us and we are his and then lives in us and starts to work in us and work through us by his spirit? What should our relationships look like? And in this section that we're in, there's a lot of just like general overarching. Here's the way that you should love one another and care for one another and be compassionate and gracious to one another, forgiving each other. And I don't want you to forget that section at the end of chapter 4 even, but then starting in chapter 5 here where we're picking up today, we get six specific examples of really common relationships with, each of the, with, with Paul who's writing here saying, this is how you live out the gospel. And this is how you live by the Spirit in these relationships. And so he, he, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, parents to children, children to parents, bosses to employees, employees to bosses. So he, you know, he gives you these six categories, and in each of them he's saying, this is what the gospel looks like if it's really changing your heart and you're living it out in these areas of your life. Specific application. And it just it puts me in this position where, first of all, you know, out of those six categories, I'm five of those. Husband, parent, son, child, boss in certain situations at work, employee in certain situations at work. Uh, so the only one that I'm not is wife. And then I feel like out of all six of them, that's the one where there's what Paul says right here is the most controversial in our culture right now. And so I feel like the most time of explanation needs to be spent there, but that's the one that I've got the least experience with. So that's one inadequacy that I feel. And then the other one, um, in one of C.S. Lewis's books, and I love C.S. Lewis. You probably, I've probably mentioned him enough by now that you know that I really like him. But he talks about that when he writes and teaches and explains things, that there's always this danger that when people read his books, they will think that because he says something clearly, that he's actually good at doing it. Like when he tells you, this is, this is what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like, that people will think, oh, well, he must do that. And he's like, no, I can see way farther than I've traveled. This is one of the ways that he says it. Like, I, I can tell you what God says, but actually living it out, like for my heart and my life to match these things, you know, sometimes there's this huge gap. And so I just want you to know, I feel that way every week when I get up here, but especially in a really practical section like this, um, I feel strongly that my job is to get up here and teach what the Bible says. You know, like to help you see it if I can, to walk with you for us to pray together, look at it together, and, and, and hopefully, you know, to open up and bring to life as God teaches by his spirit. And this is what this says, and this is what it means for us in our lives right now. But there is this danger that I'll get up here and I'll say this stuff, and just because I've said it, you'll think, well, he's doing it. Or he's doing it really well. He's doing it, but he says that more clearly than I've thought about it, so he must be doing that better than I am. And I just want you to know, I'm not. Like, if we're honest about the type of standard, like how high the bar is here for our relationships, 
I'm right there with you looking at it and saying, man, this doesn't come naturally to me. Like apart from the spirit of Jesus living inside of me and doing something, this is not what I look like. I know how hard this is. And when I say things some weeks, and, you're, and some of you, you're, like, you're really good about sharing this with me sometimes. And I had a couple people last week. Like everything you said, like it, like it was just exactly about me, and I struggle with all that stuff, and I feel so convicted. And sometimes I just want you to know, if I say things like that, and it's like, man, how does he know all that stuff about my heart? I don't. I just know that about my heart. Like, I'm just, like when, last week when I say, hey, there's all these Jesus substitutes in your life. I just list all the ones in my life. And when I say, hey, there's all this stuff that could control you more than the Spirit. I just list all the stuff that I struggle with relying on instead of the Spirit. And it just happens to be that we've all got the same common problem and condition in our hearts. And the gospel is the answer for all of us. And so I, I don't ever want to stand up, like this time isn't about me, <laughs> It's not about either, like, here's the stuff that Jesus helped me get right, or here's the stuff I still struggle with. I don't want to talk about that too much. The main thing is just this is what God says in his word. This is what it looks like to trust Jesus and rely on his spirit. But I do know that, you know, drawing on common experience and saying, this is what it's been like for me to try to follow Jesus here in ways that he's helped me, in ways that I've struggled, in ways that I still struggle. I know that can be helpful. I don't want to overdo that, but then I also just don't want to ignore it. And you walk away and think, well, he knows how to be a husband, and he knows how to be a father, and he knows how to be a really respectful, honoring son, and he knows how to be a good boss and a good employee. I know what this says, and I think you can see what this says, and we can talk through what this says, but I don't ever want the hypocrisy of, I've said it here, so you think I live here to exist. So if I can just blow that up right now, all right? Um, I need Jesus as much as anybody. From where I stand, I feel like I need Jesus more than anybody. It's one of those places where I just believe the truth of the Bible. When I say, no, evidently you need Jesus as much as I do, because that's what the Bible says about you, but it feels like I need Jesus more than you do. So, there's that. Now, last thing. We're going to focus on 17 through 33 today. My thought is we're going to focus on the husbands and wives, the marriage section. And there's a lot of stuff that, um, that I want to point out, and so I've... Even walking up here, I was still trying to decide which way we're going to approach it. What I'm going to do, I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to ask God to teach us by his Spirit to help us see the things he wants us to see this morning. And I just, I still want to start with you all sharing some truths about God. Um, and so, but I'm really, like, really going to try for me not to expand on that a lot. So it's not like your truths are landing flat or something. Like, I'm just going to write a few down as you share them. And if we need to circle back and expand on them in another week, we will. Um, and so I'd like to start there for just a few minutes. And then I've got some things that have just really, really stood out to me this week that I wanted to make sure that we cover. And I want to address some of the controversy and what I think is misunderstanding and misinterpretation of this section. And, you know, maybe that opens it up for us to understand it better and study it more in the next couple of weeks. But just I'll tip you off as we start. But the 17 through 21 section, I feel like I've looked at it more closely than ever before, like God has really drawn my attention to it, um, and I've noticed things that I haven't paid enough attention to in the past, and so that's part of the reason I want to talk about that section, why I attached it on at the beginning. So, I know that's a long preface, long introduction. Thanks for sticking with me. Let's pray. Let's read these. We'll ask us to teach about God. Will you pray with me? 
Father, thank you for this time right now. And Father, more than anything in the entire world, whether we know it or not, when we're consciously aware of it or not, when we're thinking about it or ignoring it, it really doesn't matter. It's still true. More than anything in the entire world, we need to hear from you. We need you to speak to us and teach us and work in us. And so we ask you to do all of that by your Spirit, the way that you have promised through your Son. And so I ask that the Holy Spirit will be the master teacher right now, that he will teach spiritual truths with spiritual words. Please open us up to the truth of your word and open the truth of your word up to us as only you can. Give us spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, and soft spiritual hearts to believe, trust, and love, and obey, and worship you, and be more and more like you as your spirit lives in us. Please do this work right now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Ephesians 5, picking up in verse 17. I know it starts with a therefore, because hopefully after last week, if you were here, you know we're jumping into the middle. That's why we started back at verse 1 last week. But So we're jumping into the middle, but 17 through 33 right here, and let's start where we always start. What does this teach us about God? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right. And again, I know there's a lot of practical application or maybe a lot of practical application that we have to try to clear up and explain clearly what it means. But starting place, what's that teach us about God? What truths about God just really stand out to you as the foundation for understanding everything else? God's instruction is often twisted by humanity 
And then are you saying, but it actually can't be, or like, you know? The, That's all right. I'll say, but it can't really be. Because, you know, the thing is, when we twist it, and we're really good at twisting it, <laughs> like twisting it so it doesn't have to straighten us out. Like I come twisted, and if I really believed what he said, it would straighten me out. But instead, I twist it to match the twists in me. But the deal is, when you do that, you're not actually twisting God's word. You're just twisting the application of God's word to your life. You're twisting the way that you live that out. You're twisting the way you communicate that. That's not God's word anymore. Right? That's your twisting of God's word. You have, God's word still says what it says. It's still true. It's still here. It's still here, in a sense, standing against the things that are wrong in your life and need to be straightened out. And the thing is, that isn't a, a harsh, condemning thing from him. Like, when you're twisted and you need to be straightened out, it is a loving and gracious thing that he comes and says, here, I'm going to show you where you're twisted. I'm going to show you where you need to be straightened. I'm going to give my spirit to help do that. And even if you refuse to change, I'm just going to keep showing you. Because <laughs> it's not okay for me to leave you here. And so, yeah, specifically, what did you have in mind when you said that? Yeah. All right, yeah. And I want, that's one of the big things I wanted to zero in. So let's come back to that in just a minute where Paul's like, hey, understand what the will of God is. And, and I know like, the will of God sometimes we treat like this really mysterious thing. But I, I want to come back to that in just a minute. I get exactly what you're saying. Chris, what were you saying? God's Spirit dwells in us. Um, the girls are working through a history book right now, and sometimes I get to read lessons to them. Most of the time Christy reads them, but sometimes I get to read them. And a few lessons ago, we were studying the tabernacle, and the ark in the Old Testament, you know, during the time of Moses. And we started talking about like, how significant it was at that moment in history and what a huge grace of God that it was to his people that he chose to manifest his presence. Like he, you know, he descends in that cloud, looks like a flame at night and cloud during the day, and, and dwells like in the presence of his people who, who don't deserve it, and that's really clear. But part of the result of how unworthy they are and how holy he is and how overwhelming his presence is is when they build that tabernacle and later they build the temple is that you've got the regular thing, you've got the holy place, and then in the very middle you've got the holy of holies. And the ark with the presence of God ultimately goes in the Holy of Holies. And there's this huge, thick veil, curtain, separating that from everybody. So God's presence is with them, but nobody's allowed to go in there. Right? For the, out of the entire year, nobody can go in, ever. And then one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, one person can go in to that inner area, the Holy of Holies, before the presence of God. And then the way they have to go in is offering sacrifices for their sins. 
That, that there was this mercy seat, atonement cover, and, and the presence of God dwelled above, above it, and they bring these sacrifices in. And so this one person, and, and it's still, it's, it's amazing grace from God that he would dwell among his people in that way, that they would have any access to him, that there would be a system that he sets up, a system in place from God himself where a substitute and a sacrifice could die on their behalf and that would make them acceptable and this representative could go into his presence and be in the place where God is. And then God just absolutely blows the lid off that whole situation. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, here's this once-for-all sacrifice. You don't need the blood of bulls and goats and calves anymore for you to get into the presence of God. So here's this once-for-all sacrifice, and then that veil, that the actual veil separating everybody from the Holy of Holies is torn in two from top to bottom, and God's saying, hey, it's opened up now. And it's not just one person, and it's not just one day a year, and it's not just one place anymore. It's anybody, anytime, anywhere can be in the presence of God because of the work of Jesus. Like we, we have gone from this extremely gracious work of God that was what he did with, with the Jewish people there in the Old Testament was different than anything that any nation had ever known with God before that. And as gracious and different as that was, he, he multiplies it a billion, billion, billion times over. And he's like, wherever you are now, you're the tabernacle. You're the temple. I'm coming to dwell in you. Not inside the Holy of Holies. Not inside this one place at this one location and where you, only one person has access once a year. But inside you as my people. You are my temple. You are my tabernacle. You are my dwelling place. I will live in you. And that means you have intimate access to me at all times. Like, this is a massive, massive truth. This is how intimately God loves you and accepts you and connects with you and lives in relationship with you all because of the work of his son on the cross and then it's manifested and lived out by his spirit living in us so God's spirit dwells in us and that's the key everything we're going to read is if his spirit lives in you his spirit can do the kind of stuff we're reading about if his spirit doesn't live in you like just for, just don't you can't do this you can't do this naturally. All right, what else? A couple more. Yeah, we, we as humanity look to the world to fill or satisfy us in a way that only the Spirit can. You know, this is the the Jesus substitutes that we were talking about last week. And, and I feel like you are, you, you're directing us to right to what I want to talk about. So I'm just going to pick up here for a while. And if you've got more stuff you want to say and like I start to hit on it, interrupt, that's fine. Or at the end, we'll see if we have time or we'll circle back next week. But this is, 
One of the things that stood out to me as I kept reading this week and I kept thinking about, hey, this really started back in chapter 4 with all these relational commands and especially this first part of chapter 5 is that Paul gives all of these general relational commands for all believers. For, like, this is what your relationship should look like with each other all the time. And then he gets into some specifics of wives, husbands, children, parents, uh, you know, masters or employees, bond servants or, or, or uh, sorry, I got those backwards, employers and employees. And I feel like sometimes we run straight to those specifics and we don't realize that all this general stuff applies to all those relationships as well. And so like today, if we're going to talk about marriage and husbands and wives, that doesn't just start in verse 22. Everything that he says about all your relationships applies to your marriage because that's one of your relationships. Do you see what I mean? And, and if this general stuff is supposed to happen in all of your relationships, and then the specific stuff like between husbands and wives is in addition to the general stuff, you know, that's like the advanced course. Like, like, you know, through verse 21, this is general education right here. Like everybody's got to take these classes. And then if you decide you're going to major in marriage, here's some other stuff on top of that. But I feel like we get so like, caught up in the other stuff. Like We, we try to jump straight into the, here, here's my master's degree in marriage. It's like, well, no, like, you don't even get the general stuff yet. Like, we can't do Calc 3. You're still failing Algebra 1. <laughs> do you see what I mean here? And so I wanted to back up and say, like as a starting place, let's live out the general relational commands within our marriage and see where that takes us. And so what really stood out to me here, like this is to everybody, but this is also about marriage, is he starts with, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he gives us something like really specific, all this, how do I know God's will for my life? What's God's will? I just feel like I don't know what God's will is. I understand that God's will is mysterious, especially in some of the details and in the moments of like this or this. How do I know? How do, like, what, do, what really tells me? I, I get that. But parts of it aren't mysterious. Parts of it he said really, really clearly. And I think sometimes that it's almost a, a defense mechanism or a deflection for us to spend all our time talking about the parts we don't understand because that way we don't have to focus on the fact that we don't live out the parts we do understand. That I think if we would just give as much energy to saying, okay, he said these things clearly, and I clearly don't do those things yet. So I need the help of the Spirit in these areas of my life. I need to confess these things, and I need to ask Jesus to help me live these things out as his Spirit lives in me. And if we started there and gave as much energy to just saying, what, what he's clearly said, I want to be that, as we give to, I don't know this, how do I figure this out? We might be amazed how much of this stuff doesn't really matter too much. <laughs> that it just kind of falls out the way it should because we're starting to live the way that he says by his spirit. So, right here, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then the very next thing he says, don't get drunk on wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. So, the way that I pull the truth out of 17 and 18, God's will for you like the next time you want to ask this question or somebody wants to ask you this question, take them to these two verses. What's God's will for me? God's will for you is that the controlling influence in your life will be His 
Spirit and not anything else. Do you see that in those two verses? Like, understand what the Lord's will for you is. Be filled with the Spirit. I mean, you can't put them any more close. Like 17 and 18 go together. There's nothing in between, right? This is as close as you can get them together. And somehow we don't see that as God's will for us sometimes. So God's will for you is that the controlling influence in your life will be His Spirit. I know I talked about this a little bit last week, and I have that fear where I finished up last week. Like another one of my inadequacies, just to share it with you, is I know that I can be unbalanced in my words. I know I can come and emphasize this side so much in any one week that I don't say enough about this side. And some of you, like just graciously and by the work of God, you understand what I mean and you take it away and you benefit from it. I'm thankful for that. But I know that when I'm too unbalanced in my words, it can lead to the possibility of there being misunderstanding. And so I focused here last week on the do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And one of the points I was trying to make is that if we come and we ask the wrong question of the Bible, you know, we say the right questions, what's this teach about God? Any other question is the wrong question. <laughs> like if you start anywhere else, not with him, it's the wrong question. But if we ask the wrong question, a lot of people come to this verse and they ask a question about alcohol primarily instead of a question about God. And I was trying to show last week how that can lead you to the totally wrong place. That you ask a question about alcohol, and some people will come and say, hey, this is part of the reason you should never, ever drink. And that's the main thing they take away from this verse. Like, it's an argument against drinking. And that's not the main thing this verse is about. Other people come and say, well, it just says don't get drunk with wine. It doesn't say never, ever drink. And so now you've got your battle lines drawn, right? Some people take the, it's okay to drink, don't get drunk. Some people take the, don't ever drink. And they argue about that forever. That's not the point of the verse. <laughs> The point of the verse is be filled with the Spirit. Don't let anything, including alcohol, control you in the way that only the Spirit of God should control you. And so then, when we ask, what's this teach about God? And it teaches God's will for you is that the controlling influence in your life will be His Spirit. Now we've all got to come and examine our hearts and say, what controls me? What are my deepest motivations? If I ask the why behind what I'm doing, is the why because the Spirit of God lives in me and controls me, or is it something else? And now, listen, just I'm going to tell you right now, it gets real nasty real fast. Because all this good stuff, the whys are really bad sometimes in my heart. I do good stuff because in ego and pride, I want them to admire me. That's satanic. Like, I want admiration and, and adoration and glory that belongs to God alone. And so I do really good stuff and I jump through everybody's hoops and I follow the rules and I make myself look the way that everybody says I should look. And, and I'm celebrated as, hey, that's, that's a great church member. If we had a hundred other people that looked like that, what would it be like? And in deep in my heart, it's all about me and it's for me because I want you to see me a certain way and think a certain thing about me. And my heart is wretched in that moment. Like that, that's why when you get to the why, it's so dangerous. You know, all the things that you can think of that can control you other than the Spirit, they're in play now. And the, the other thing that happens is suddenly it's like, this includes alcohol. Right? It very well may be that you never drink a drop in your life because of a deep conviction in your heart where you say, I want to make sure the Spirit controls me and not this thing. And so I'll, I'll give this thing up for the sake of the Spirit. And that, that's a totally different conversation. Because you've asked the right question. Like, I want the Spirit to control me. Or it may be that you say, you know what? You know a huge danger for me? Legalism and self-righteousness. 
And I've been raised in religious traditions where most of my motivation comes from legalism and self-righteousness. And it's actually more dangerous for me to take a teetotaler stance because it'll come out of self-reliance and self-effort and self-righteousness. And so I'm just going to say, yeah, like there are situations where maybe somebody could drink and it would be fine if that doesn't control them instead of the Spirit. Do you you see how it can't just be the surface thing, the behavior? Why? Why? And it really always will boil down to is the why something about self or is it because of the Spirit? The Bible calls self flesh a lot of times. Flesh or spirit, self or spirit. And so what I was trying to say last week is that when we ask this question the right way, what does it teach about God? He's saying that God desires for the Spirit to control you more than anything else in your life, for the, the Spirit to be the reason why you do what you do and the power that enables you to do what you do. I'm not, I'm not taking a definitive stance on you should never ever drink or you should drink, or, or people, how much should you drink? If that's what you're, you're still asking the wrong question. How filled with the Spirit do you need to be? That's the right question. That's what this is about. And I promise that question will settle all the others. <laughs> but this is God's will for you. Now here's the second thing that I feel like I've never paid enough attention to. Right after Paul says be filled with the Spirit, he gives us a lot of clarity about what that looks like. like I feel like you know, God's will, we treat that as really mysterious. And then being filled with the Spirit sometimes, we treat that as really mysterious. Or, you know, in some of our faith traditions, being filled with the Spirit is a very, like, ecstatic, emotional, charismatic thing. And it can produce that sometimes. But look at the things that he immediately points to. So just to pull out some other truths here in verses 18 and then starting in 19. When you are filled with God's Spirit. These things, according to the Bible, according to Paul right here, will flow out of you. And this is, like, if you all like your lists, I know that sometimes this teaching style doesn't give you as many lists as some of you may like. I've got a list for you this week, all right? And it's a long one, and it's a challenging one, so be careful what you wish for, I guess. When you're filled with the Spirit, these things will flow out of you. Now look what he says. Be filled with the Spirit, comma, everything that comes after it is descriptions of being filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the very first thing we get, what's going to flow out of you, is encouragement encouragement to others, right? That being filled with the Spirit is not an individualistic thing. It's not, he doesn't give you his Spirit just for you. The very first thing he mentions is that you're going to speak, address others, right? communicate in a way that encourages them specifically in, here's the second thing that's going to flow out of you, truth about who God is. And the reason I say that is, okay, so we're addressing one another, and specifically we're using these forms of communication and worship. Psalms, you know, 
part of the Bible here that's teaching us who God is, hymns, spiritual songs, that we know that this is worship about God. So what we're doing is we are using our words to communicate truth about God, specifically in a way that's addressing everybody else around us. This is like the main function of corporate worship when we gather as the body. That when we are declaring God's glory and worshiping Him, you can do that anytime, anywhere. You should do that anytime, anywhere. But we gather together to live this out right here, that we get to hear each other, and we get to be reminded of those truths, and we get to be reminded other people believe this. And it co- confirms it and affirms it, and it encourages us to keep believing it. And so you're filled with the Spirit. Here's the first thing that flows out to you. Stuff to other people, not just for yourself, and specifically truths about God. Truths about God that make him worthy of worship, that you are encouraging other people with them and reminding them of those truths. So if you're filled with the Spirit, here's what's flowing out of you. Encouragement to others. Encouragement to others with truth about who God is. Third, worship to God. Even though you're encouraging them and, and addressing them, this truth about God, the way you're addressing them is in a way that you're praising God. It says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And I'll just tell you right now, I don't think that means like do it in your heart and not with your voice because that would make no sense for the addressing one another part. So some of you are like, well, you know, I, I just, I, this is in my heart and that's enough. No, what it's saying is don't do it just with your lips. You can do it with your lips without doing it with your heart. And Jesus was not happy about that if you want to go and read the Gospels. <laughs> And this is saying, now when you do it with your lips, do it with your heart too. All of you. That this is really what you believe about God. This is how you're coming to see God. This, this is coming out of you because it's in you. You worship Him because you love Him. You're declaring this about Him because you believe this about Him. You're sharing this with other people because it's gripped you so deeply and you know how desperately you need Him and you realize they do too and what He is for me, He is for them and I want them to know it and I want them to remember and I know how often I forget and how easily it leaks out of me and if I can just help them remember and they can be a little bit encouraged today that this is who God is and this is what His gospel is and this is how He loves us and this is what He's done for us in Jesus and this is where all of our hope is found. If that'll flow out of me and they can hear that a little bit it's all worth it but he's saying it's got to be real in you for you to give them the real thing it's got to be something that's really happening in your heart for it to flow out of your mouth in a way that has substance to it and not just hypocrisy and that is that's why like standing up here i worry about saying these things to you that i know aren't manifest well enough in my heart in the way the bible says them and so then i just want to like the best thing I know to do is confess that to you so there's still a gap. There's a gap in me and I know there's a gap in you and Jesus is the answer for the gap and I'll just keep pointing you to him and, and you point me to him and let's go to him together. But if you're filled with the Spirit, encouragement to others, truth about who God is, worship to God that's really genuine flowing out of your heart, giving thanks. So filled with the Spirit, here's something else that's going to flow out of you. Thanks to God. Um. I've been, I've been trying to be more intentional about living this one out. It's easy for me to complain. I, I know it's probably just me, but it's easy for me to complain to God about all the things that aren't good or aren't the way I want them to be. And so at night, like when everybody's in bed, it's 
dark and quiet, and I'm just laying there. One of the last things I've been trying to do is I've been trying to think of three specific things, and not the kind of stuff like where you can just check it off. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the food we had today, and thank you for the good weather. Like repeating that. And not that you can't be thankful for that stuff, but you know what I mean? I've, I've been trying to think through the day and actually think about, hey, here's three times where you just really, you spoke to me or you did something. Or <laughs> sometimes it's like I was really overwhelmed when the morning started and it was going to be a really busy day. And I had to, there was like 12 different people I needed to talk to. And you canceled that meeting. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for giving me 30 minutes without anybody. Um, but, but really, I mean, like really specific stuff of just, hey, this was a really good moment with, with the family when we were all laughing about this tonight. Thank you for that. Or the, just to be really intentional about, God, I want to thank you for things. Because in those moments, I will say that when, when I am thanking him, complaining doesn't flow out in the same moment. Like it at least puts a stopper on the complaining for a few minutes. But if you're filled with the Spirit... Thanks to God, gratitude, appreciation is going to flow out of you. But then it's more than just that. Giving thanks always and for everything. Do you believe that or you just blow past that? I like to blow past that. I mean, that's just too hard. And so here's what I would say. The fifth thing, if you're filled with the Spirit, that's going to be flowing out of you. Faith in God. And if you want to say faith in God's goodness, you can. The only way that you can give thanks to God always and everything is if you trust him more than you trust the circumstances in your life. If you believe him farther than what your eyes can see right now, where you can say, this looks really bad. This is really hard. This hurts a lot. I don't know what to do with this. I'm confused. I'm lost. I'm broken. I'm hurting. I'm struggling. Whatever it is, you can say, but thank you that you're good and your love endures forever. And thank you that you're bigger than this and thank you that you're in control of this and thank you that you know, you already know how you're redeeming this and how you're working it for good and thank you that you know the things inside of me that mean I need this right now and somehow you're working in me even when I don't see it yet and I may not see it for a long time, I still trust you, I believe you enough that even if I don't understand it, I can thank you for it. That's what's going on. It it doesn't mean... I am convinced of this after reading the Psalms over and over and over. It does not mean that you pretend that everything's good in your life, that everything's easy. Like, that, that's just fake religion all over again. Like, things can be heavy and things can be hard and things can be overwhelming and things can be more than you can bear. And you come and you cry out and you say it's heavy and it's hard and it's overwhelming and it's more than I can bear. But you're still here. And you're still good and you're more than this thing and you're bigger than this thing and you can handle this thing and you can handle me and you love me and you've promised to, so thank you. I'm not, not thanking you for this thing by itself. And again, I think this is a great hint that you don't rip this stuff out. Like the for everything, I don't thank him for this thing apart from him. I thank him for this thing connected to him because of him in light of who he is. The whole foundation of chapters 1 through 3, if that's who God is, that's why I can thank him in the middle of this. I've got to know who he is though or I can't thank him this way. 
There's no way to be thankful for whatever the hardest thing is that you will ever go through. Whatever the darkest moment of your life is going to end up being. Whatever the biggest suffering and the biggest struggle, whatever it is for you. If it's all you see, you can't thank him for that. Because it really is hard. It really is awful. It really is too much. But if you see him, if you see who he is, and you know that that thing, that hard thing, that dark thing in your life doesn't change him... It's not bigger than him. It can't conquer him. It won't outlast him. That his love is more than that. His redemption is greater than that. His promises to you are going to extend beyond that. They're going to include that. They're going to swallow that up and redeem it and turn it for good in ways that you can't even begin to imagine yet. If you believe that, you can thank him. And it doesn't mean that you've got to stop hurting. It doesn't mean you've got to fake it. It doesn't mean you've got to put a smile on your face. You can thank him with tears in your eyes. You can thank him for a broken heart with a broken heart. You can thank him that he's gentle when people are crushed. You can thank him that he doesn't put you out when you're just a smoldering wick. And you can say, that's me. I am that weak. I am that broken. I am that overwhelmed. But instead of crushing me, you keep loving me and you're tender with me and you're compassionate and you're merciful and you pity me. Thank you. So this isn't fake it. This is believe who he is in the midst of how you feel, in the midst of whatever's going on. That type of faith, listen, that is spirit-produced faith. That is not natural. Natural will see the circumstances. Natural will see the struggles. Natural will just see what human eyes can see. The spirit helps you see who God is. The spirit keeps reminding you of the truth of who he is. And you can believe that because the Spirit lives in you and He's producing that in you. And you can thank Him for that because the Spirit is producing in you a heart that loves who He is more than the circumstances of your life. Next one. Out of reverence for Christ. So a respect or reverence for Jesus. Reverence. Will flow out of you if you're filled with the Spirit. That I think it's all of this that you're doing, but it's specifically talking in verse 21 when you submit to one another. That it's about, do you see this? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like it's about Jesus. It's because of, when you're filled with the Spirit, what you do will be because of Jesus. Jesus will be the focus. Jesus will be the reason. Jesus will be the power. The, the more you're filled with the Spirit, the more your life will be about Jesus. The more you're filled with the Spirit, the higher of a view you will have of Jesus. The more you will see how worthy he is and how wonderful he is and how good he is and how great he is. And how much, yes, he deserves for your life to be about him, but even more, how much it's worth it for your life to be about him. That he's the best thing your life could ever be about. And that, that type of respect, this awe, this looking up to Jesus, this admiration of how great he is, that's going to grow in you the more you're filled with the Spirit. It's going to flow out of you the more you're filled with the Spirit. And then I left this one to last just because of how much it ties into the next section. If we're filled with the Spirit, the more we're filled with the Spirit, here's what's going to flow out of us. This is an ugly word. Submission. In your relationships, plural, 
And part of the reason I left this for last, I think we've got a little time, we're not going to finish the next section, but is because, like I know, this very next section, I'm just going to go ahead, this right here, wives, submit to your own husbands. Like, I know what an absolute dumpster fire that is in our world. <laughs> All right, I mean, it doesn't matter. Some of you are in this ditch over here. Some of you are in this ditch over here. And then what we do is like we get in this ditch and all we do is argue with the people in this ditch. And the people over here argue, and like we use their error to try to prove our error is better. And then we use their error, like I, I'm not like them. Listen, everybody's wrong. Like what, what the Bible is saying right here is this. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I just want you to see that's not the only submission command in this text. And I think that, like, especially in the religious world, that's an important place to start. He starts with all of you. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be submitting to one another. There's going to be something in your heart that submits to other people. Now, why? Why, if you're filled with the Spirit, would submission be produced in you? There may be a million answers. I'm going to give you two right now. Number one, if you are right about who you are and who God is, where are you and where is he? You're below him, he's above you, okay? We may, <laughs> that may sound elementary, but we're all failing elementary school with that one. He's God and nobody else is. And the only way you can see someone who's that far above you in everything, and perfect in every way, like the everything that you fall short in, that you're down here somewhere below the bar, and he's above it in perfection, the only way you can see someone above you is to look up, right? I, I, I know this sounds really simple right now, but I'm really dead serious. If something isn't growing in you, that first of all takes your eyes off. Like if you're looking here, do you know who you're not seeing? God. And also, if you're looking here, better than them. Kept those rules better than them. Look, I don't drink. Look what I do. But I come every Sunday. Look, if you're looking down, you know who you're not seeing? God. And so here's the... the if the foundational starting place is for you to know God and have a relationship with him, that cannot happen unless there's some shred of submission in your heart. The Spirit must, that's the only place you'll see him, is you below him and him above you and you looking up at him. Like this has to happen. And so Paul's writing to believers who are professing faith in Jesus and the Spirit lives in them. Well, if the Spirit lives in them, this has to be produced in them, Right? So it's the only way you'll see God. The second thing is, this is the Spirit of Christ living in you. No one has ever been more humble, less self-centered, more God-centered, focused on the Father's glory. No one has ever submitted to the Father more completely and more perfectly than Jesus. If Jesus' Spirit lives in you, Jesus' Spirit will start to produce Jesus' submission in you. If you have trouble with submission... How many of you have trouble with submission? Like 70% of you have trouble with submission and 30% of you have trouble with lying in church. 
man, I have trouble with submission. What are some opposite words? What's the opposite? Let's do antonym game. What's the opposite of submission? You can shout out for a minute. Oppression. Okay, well, yeah. Somebody can oppress you and you're not submitting. I'm saying, when you're not submitting, what are you doing? Okay, dominating, yeah, putting yourself over. What else? Huh? Leading. Leading? Could be. What else? I'm thinking about what? Rebel. That's the dra- I, I was thinking, okay, if I'm the one that's supposed to submit and I don't, what am I usually doing? I, I, so I was thinking in terms of like I'm rebelling, I'm fighting, I'm undermining, I'm working against, like that kind of thought. And listen, it, like all I need is just the, the smallest reason. Like give me any reason to doubt that you should be an authority over me, you're out. Like it's just, it's there. I don't even need a reason most of the time. I don't even need the smallest reason. But the point here is, like, sin nature, self that's been twisted by sin, I'm first, I'm above, I'm the reason, I'm the authority, I define me, don't tell me what to do. And before we even start to talk about human relationships, you can't have a relationship with God when that's where your heart is. Now, it's where all of our hearts naturally are. It's what Romans 5 says. We were God's enemies. You know, we're not submitting to his authority. We're actively fighting against his authority, rejecting his authority. And while we were his enemies, he demonstrates his love for us and that Christ died for us. People that are rebelling against them, instead of rebelling against him, instead of crushing us in our rebellion, you know what he did? He died for us to win our submission. He didn't say, I can make you do this. I'm going to make you do this. He said, I'm going to love you so extravagantly that I'm going to convince you you should. I'm going to win your love. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to draw you to me. I'm going to make you want to submit. Now, there's this war inside of us, right? This war that I want to be God. I don't want to submit to anybody, including God. But the Spirit's opening my eyes to the beauty of God's love and the beauty of God's gospel. And when the Spirit lives in me, I'm starting to see, no, that really is better. It's better to submit to Him than it is for me to be in charge. He's a better God than I am. He's a better boss than I am. He's a better leader than I am. He loves me better than I love myself. And so, submission in all your relationships, because it's the only way to have a relationship with God, and then submission also because this is what Jesus modeled. This is what he lived out. This is how the Son submits to the Father. And in the middle of submitting to the Father that way, he then sends his Spirit to live in us, to produce his submission in us. So this isn't some call for you to feel really guilty right now because of how bad you are at this. And I know you are, all right? We all are. Like, it does not take a PhD in psychology for me to know the rebellion that lives in you. It's like, read one chapter of the Bible, and we know the rebellion that lives in all of us. But this isn't just be, feel guilty because you do this terribly. This is be humbled about the fact that you do this terribly. And in your humility, cry out to Jesus for the type of submission that he has and you don't. And ask him for what he promises to give you. To fill you with his spirit. For his spirit. Not that he would help you submit better. 
that he would live his submission in you. That's what you need. You don't need a better version of your submission. You need his submission, his supernatural, spirit-filled submission to change your heart and soften your heart in all of our relationships. All right, I think we've got like five to ten minutes to wrap up today. And so marriage is primarily next week, I believe. Maybe we'll attach parenting next week. We'll just see. But I, wanna, I just want to jump in quickly. I hope that is like a really good contextual introduction of all that that we just said. You should be filled with the Spirit, encouraging others with the truth about who God is, worshiping God, giving thanks to God, growing in your faith in God, having a respect and a reverence for Jesus, and submission in your relationships. Listen, if we're all supposed to do that within the body, like with one another, then all that stuff applies to all of us in our marriages if we're married. It applies to all of our relationships. Do you get that? So anything we say to husbands and wives next starts with, wives, all of this should be flowing out of you towards your husband. Husbands, all of this should be flowing out of you towards your wife. It may take specific expression because you're a husband, she's a wife, or, or you're a wife and he's a husband. Like it may take different expressions sometimes, but the core and root of what the Spirit is flowing out of you is all of this. And listen, I'm going to tell you, when you look at that list, how many of you are knocking that thing out of the park? Shoot. Sometimes I wonder if I discourage people way more than I encourage them. If I spend way more time talking about my feelings or my frustrations or my opinions than the truth about who God is. If I spend way more time loving the things of the world than worshiping God. If I spend way more time complaining about what I don't like than giving thanks to God. If I spend way more time in fear and anxiety and worry instead of faith. If I spend way more time just ignoring Jesus. Like not actively disrespecting him. Usually I'm pull that off sometimes too, but just ignoring him and doing my own thing than being in awe of him. If I spend way more time getting my own way and putting myself first than submitting to others. It's like, there's no way. There's no way I move on to the master's program yet. God, I'm none of this apart from you. And when I am any of this, it's clear that it's because your spirit lives in me because I've proven for a really long time now that this is not what flows out of me naturally. And so thank you that you pour some, like that some of it's starting to come out. When any of it comes out, I know it's you. Please do it more. I need you to do it more. There will not be any more that comes out of me unless you live in me and you do this. I hope that's where this takes us. A humble confession of who we are apart from Jesus and this huge hope of what God promises us in Jesus. That what he, the very people who aren't any of this, he says, if you would just admit that you're spiritually bankrupt and you're empty and you're broken and you're blind, I will fill you up. I will make you see. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to make progress. You don't have to get better at it. Bring me your empty and your nothingness. Bring me your worn out self-effort that hasn't gotten you there. And admit you're not getting there. And I will live in you and I will give you my supernatural grace and my spirit to start changing you. And I will walk this journey with you.
So if we just stopped there this morning, it'd be a great place to stop. But I do want to try to at least acknowledge this next section. We'll come back to it next week. So this wife, submit to your husbands. I think we've got, I said this, I think we've got two wrong views. And the wrong views argue with each other and use each other to justify themselves and never look and say, what does God actually mean here? So one wrong view of wife, submit to your husband. And I'm going to start like closer to home. I think this is like a fundamentalist, religious, traditional view that's totally wrong. Wives, submit to your husbands does not mean that there is a fundamental distinction between men and women when it comes to ability, leadership, or decision-making. That's not what that verse says. It does not say that men should always be in charge and women should do whatever they're told. And we've got this Neanderthal caveman view out here that sets men up like that and women here, and no wonder the world rebels against that. Okay? So that's not what it says. Now, in the rebellion against it, what some of us say, here's the other error, is that, hey, this thing in the Bible is demeaning to women, and so we completely reject it. There's no room for this. There should be no expression of this. Men and women are exactly the same. There's no distinction between them. I feel like those are kind of your two extreme errors. Are you with me there? And I'm not asking you where you are. I'm not, and I know that the shades of that. But I think that helps us as a starting place. I'm saying both those are wrong. Like, can you hear me on that? Those are both wrong. Now, both those views argue, like, like this view over here is like, this Neanderthal view, I'll never believe that. And so they feel justified to stay over here. And they're like, this view over here, there's no difference between men and women. Well, that's just stupid. I'll never believe that. And they stay over here. Somebody please talk about the Bible. I don't, don't sit here and tell them they're wrong. Don't tell them they're wrong. Tell them what God actually says. So, first thing I want to point out, to here's why I think those are wrong. With this one over here, notice, just, notice the stinking words. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Does that say all women submit to all men? All right, this is wrong. <laughs> like, this is a very, very specific thing. If you're married, this applies to one relationship in your life. If you're not married, this doesn't apply to any relationships in your life. Do you see that? All right. So this is not about the value or ability or anything else of women in comparison to men. It's just not. It's about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Secondly, this is not a statement about value or ability at all, even within marriage. This is a statement about your heart toward your spouse, just like husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a statement about a husband's heart toward his wife. This is a statement about your heart and your role, not about your value or your ability. And so over here to this side, I would say, this is saying there's a difference in roles. It is. And that's Okay. And so here's where I want to go, and we're just going to end here today. I've not said everything I want to say. We'll pick back up next week. But if that's still hard for you to swallow, and you're like, well, why, why is the wife in the submission role and the husband's in the leadership role? Isn't that demeaning to her? Isn't that somehow still devaluing her? Here's my suggestion to you. Stop thinking about marriage. Stop thinking about husbands and wives. Stop thinking about men and women. Stop thinking about humans. And think about God for a minute. 
these three persons in the Trinity. Fully God. Fully divine. Worthy of all the worship and admiration and adoration and thanksgiving that you could ever give them. And just focus on Father and Son for just a minute. God the Father is an authority figure in that relationship. And Jesus the Son willingly and lovingly submits to him. And that doesn't devalue Jesus. How many of you would say Jesus is less valuable because he's the Son to the Father? (laughs) So you can be in a role of submission and it not be about your value or worth. Do we agree about that? As a matter of fact, if your job in submitting is to reflect the submission of Christ that he has toward the Father, what more glorious and valuable role is there in the whole world? Like, it may not be valuable to the world because all we want is to be in charge. I get that. But Paul's coming and he's saying, hey, wives, you get a chance to look like Jesus. The way the Son submits to the Father. You get to submit in your marriages. You get a chance to show the fruit of the Spirit in you. And I can't tell you how important and how valuable that is. Like, for us to say that's not valuable... Like what we're implying is that Jesus isn't valuable in what he does. Like when the Son obeys the Father and comes, and the Son obeys the Father to the point of death, we're saying, that's not valuable. How dare he have to submit? He didn't have to submit. He wanted to. He chose to. It's what lives in him. This is the very nature of God himself. And so, I got just... Just as one word today, like shouting against both errors. Women, you are so valuable. You are equally valuable with men. And any lies in traditional or fundamentalist or conservative religious circles that have communicated otherwise, they are lies and they do not come from God and they do not come from the Bible. You are needed in the body and you have such a significant role to play in the body and in your families and in your homes and we need the Spirit of God to live in you and for you to live out the Spirit of Christ in your relationships. We need you. Now on the other end, for those of you who think everybody's the same, listen, what other area of life does it work when we deny all distinctions? Hey, we're all going to be a quarterback tonight. No linemen, that's less valuable. No receivers, less valuable. You're going to lose every game. Linemen are valuable for being linemen. Receivers are valuable for being receivers. Right? I know the quarterback calls the plays. Guess what? That doesn't make him most valuable. It doesn't. It is a different role. It is not different value. And so what I really... This one gets twisted. What I really hate about this other view of we're going to deny all distinctions, men and women, is exactly the same. What they, what they imply there is the only way you can value women is to treat them exactly like men. You know what that does? That completely devalues women. Because <laughs> it says women aren't valuable as women. They're only valuable if you treat them like men because men's the only thing that's valuable. Do you see that? I'm not making that up. That is really what's at the heart of that. And what the Bible says is men are valuable as men and women are valuable as women. We need men to be spirit-filled men and we need women to be spirit-filled women. 
We don't need you to be men. Men, we don't need you to be women. We need you to be what God made you, and we need His Spirit to bring out the best parts of all of that in all of us. And so don't devalue women by saying, hey, the only way you can have value is to act like a man and be treated like a man. My word, that's the most devaluing thing you could ever say to a woman. You are valuable as a woman because God made you a woman. You are valuable in your role of submission because it's the primary role that the Son takes to the Father within the Godhead. It is in the nature of God from all eternity past, and He lets you take that role. This is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Okay, so and I, all I'm doing right now is responding to the errors. I know that. I'm trying to say here's the actual thing the Bible says. That this is a high and holy and valuable calling. We need the Spirit of God to help us live it out. Right, and I know there's way more we can talk about next week, so I'm going to end right here. And I'm sorry I went five minutes longer than I meant to. That's what he says to wives. And then he turns around. Like he's just, he just, like, you have a role in marriage that looks like Jesus the Son's role within the Godhead. And then he turns right around to husbands and he says, you've got a role in marriage that looks like Jesus' role to the church. <laughs> Love your wife the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so listen, if that's a leadership role, let me tell you what type of leadership role it is. It's a leadership role that says, I will put you first so much that I will die. I'll love you to the point of crucifixion. I'll give myself up for you. If women have a hard time, wives have a hard time submitting to their husbands, half the reason is because we have no idea how to love like that. The other half the reason is because we're all rebellious in nature, and that includes women. <laughs> but it's both of us. Like, the only way, husbands, that you will love your wife that way is if the Spirit of God lives in you and produces the love of God in you. But here's what I want you to see as we quit right here. Wives, look like Jesus the Son in relation to God the Father. Husbands, look like Jesus the Savior in relation to the church. All believers, look like Jesus. Jesus submits perfectly and Jesus leads perfectly. Jesus loves perfectly. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer for everything in your heart and everything in your marriage and everything in your life. He has done it perfectly and He promises to come and live in you by His Spirit and give you things that you will never, ever have naturally. And so this has nothing to do with the world's view of marriage. It has nothing to do with the world's view of masculinity or femininity or the lack thereof. This has everything in the world to do with who God is and what He has done for you in Jesus and what He promises to do in you because of Jesus as His Spirit lives in you. And He's the one who loved you and gave Himself up for you. He has earned the right for you to believe Him and listen to Him and trust Him. And he has earned the right for you to say, I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what my own flesh says. I'm going to believe you. So next week, maybe we'll get to hear him tell us more. Because <laughs> we're done today. That's all I got. <laughs> if you want to read this and reflect on it, we're going to pick right back up here. I really, I thought, I really thought, because I wrote out more notes, maybe we can go faster. I just couldn't do it. But this is the gospel.
This is God for you in Christ, in your whole life, including your marriage. And so we'll be back here next week. That's great, because you can read ahead, be ready for truths. I'll let you share more. Let's pray right now. Let's ask God to do in us what only he can do, and then we're going to worship him because we know he's doing it in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth of your word over against our twisted hearts and our misguided thoughts and opinions. Thank you for the truth of your word over against what the world and the culture would tell us. Thank you that you have been gracious to speak and let us know what the truth actually is. Father, help us hear it. Give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Give us eyes to see Jesus more and more and more. Jesus as the one who submits perfectly. Jesus as the one who leads perfectly. Jesus as the one who loves perfectly. Jesus as the one who is the answer for everything we need and everything you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.